Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 20. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisherman.com slash rogues. Chapter 31 The chamber looked like a schoolroom, filled with low tables on the bare wooden floor and a dais and lectern at one end. Beautiful tapestries of gods and prophets covered the walls, and pools of blood spattered broad sections of the floor. A door hung ajar leading out to the gardens at the rear of the temple. Some of them tried to escape out the back entrance. They didn't make it, Rusk said. Tonin said, Where are the bodies, sir? Rusk grinned like a shark, as if pleased with a particularly diabolical idea. He stepped up onto the dais. The lectern had been shoved aside, revealing an opening in the floor with iron rungs embedded in the stone leading downward. Javin peered into the hole, which glowed with light burning below. At the bottom of the rungs was a generous spattering of blood. Rusk handed a lock of hair to Javin. Javin took it, turned it over and over in his fingers, held it up to the light of a lamp. The hair was long and light brown. Bella's? Javin said. It's too light to be farthy. Where did you find this? Pinched between the lectern and the floor. Javin glanced at the pool of blood below, trusting after a moment that none of it belonged to Bella. So what are we waiting for? One last bit of deviltry. Snake Eye walked up behind them, carrying a brown-robed body on his shoulder. He stepped past and up to the hole. He unceremoniously dumped the corpse head first through the opening, and it hit the stone below with a sickening crunch. There's some kind of secret room down there and a tunnel leading off somewhere. I'll wager that no one outside this temple knows of this secret room. With everyone in the temple dead, it'll take them a long time to find these bodies. Might gain us a bit more time. Spilled blood would be the only evidence of what actually happened. All the priests and their acolytes would simply appear to have disappeared. To the superstitious Farthy, this would only heighten the terror, perhaps paralyze them for a short time. Docks walked up. Boss, I found a perfect patch of loose earth in the temple garden. We can bury Corkleg where no one will think to look for him. Very well, Rusk said. You have a shovel. Aye, boss. Found two of them in the garden shed. Rusk nodded and gestured at Maggot. Go, help him dig the grave. Dig it as deep as you can. You'll have ten minutes. Docks and Maggot ran out into the night. 
Four more furies came into the schoolroom carrying bodies, some of which were disturbingly small, and dumped them into the hole. Tonin looked ill, his face was pale, his lips tight. He caught Javin looking at him and said, At least they will all be in the earth and hallowed soil. Rusk turned to the furies who had just dumped their burdens. How many more? Shard said, Six more on the fourth floor. After that, we'll give it all one more sweep. You have five minutes. Then we're moving. There's a two thousand zoll price on my head. I'll be damned if I'm going to make any farther, your rich man. Aye, boss. Rusk turned to Javin and Tonin. Down the hole, little codsuckers. Javin lowered himself into the hole. The wet stickiness of blood smeared the cold iron rungs. At the foot of the ladder was a small room furnished only with shelves laden with clay jars, books, and scrolls, a table shoved against the wall, and a neatly stacked pile of corpses. Staring eyes, twisted limbs, rumpled clothing, glistening bloodstains. A passageway led off into the darkness, and the smell of fresh earth mixed with the stench of blood, punctured entrails, and death. "'Look out below!' came Carl's voice. Javin jumped away from the ladder, and three more bodies crashed onto the earthen floor. Fear Jack and Buck came for the fresh bodies. Only Javin hesitated for a moment before he grasped one of the corpses by the ankles and dragged it toward the pile. The body was light and his heart clenched as he realized that this one was the boy from the foyer. The boy's staring eyes had dried, and now looked somehow fake, like stones cut and polished into doll's eyes. He hurriedly tossed the boy with the others and stood away. There were at least thirty corpses already stacked there, all of them slain in cold blood. Javin's ears buzzed, and his knees felt weak. He leaned against the wall and avoided Fear Jack and Buck's gaze. He would not show weakness. His memory flashed back to the poor, filthy mule skinners who cleaned up the battlefields at Tarn's Rift, scavenging from the dead. Tonin joined him, then Sasha and Carl, Brown Buff and Shard, Mackett and Stone, Singer and Slammer, Edan and Mardan, Fishbreath and Horus. The small room grew crowded. Rusk came down the ladder, followed by Dox and Maggot. Ost called down, Boss, Severn and Brick and I will wipe up the blood and cover our tracks. Aye, Ost, you'll be the rear guard. They did a quick check of weapons and lamps, making sure they had extra torches. No telling how far this goes. Rusk took up a lamp in his left hand and drew his massive four-barreled pistol in the other. Codsuckers in the rear. One by one, the Black Furies ducked into the narrow tunnel, with one lamp in the front and one in the middle of the line. When Maggot went in after Shard, Javin and Tonin were alone. Javin said, Thank you for calling Maggot down. You might have saved my life. Tonin's gaze met Javin. Tonin's gaze met Javin's. Thank you for getting angry over what he did. I fear some of these men have lost their souls. I wonder how they can keep them in a business like this. I wonder how any of us can. I fear my conscience might make a coward of me. Tonin looked away and wiped his lips. Come on, we don't want to get lost. 
They followed into the tunnel. From the rear, Javin could see only bobbing black heads and shoulders in the pools of yellow radiance. The walls were tightly mortared red brick, rising into an arch above their heads, and the floor turned to hard-packed earth. The close air smelled of damp earth and mold. No one spoke. A pool of light came up from behind. Javin turned and saw Ost's face, the rims of his spectacles glistening in the light from the lamp in his hand. Two more shadows followed close behind him. A hiss rippled back down the line from the fore. They stopped, and Javin had a sudden sensation of being trapped in the earth, unable to move forward, unable to move back. If they were trapped somehow, there would be nowhere to go. The column started to move again, and the lead lamp glow rose and disappeared into the ceiling. The tunnel came to an abrupt halt with a ladder similar to the first that led back to the world above. One by one, they climbed the ladder and disappeared. When Javin's turn came, Sasha stood beside it, holding a lamp. There was just enough room to pass her to climb the ladder, but as he grasped one of the rungs, she took his arm. Wait. He stepped away from the ladder and gave Ost, Brick, and Severn room to climb. The tunnel was so narrow that he was forced close to her to let them pass. Her scent filled his nostrils again and a rush of heat exploded through his veins. Parts of her softness and parts of her hard-muscled angles pressed against him. "'They're gone. You can move now,' she said. He stepped back. "'There's something you should know. The boss didn't want to tell you, because he felt it would cloud your judgment. But she's your sister, and you have a right to know.' Javin's veins turned to ice. "'What is it?' Behind the temple, we found a wooden crate. They looked to have brought her all the way from Norgard inside that crate. It was filthy inside and bloody. Javin's fists clenched as imaginations of what had been done to Bella flooded his mind. She has already suffered much. Men who would treat a girl like that are capable of far worse. Why are you telling me this? I saw your face when the young acolyte was killed. Her hand squeezed his. Harden yourself, Javin. If you don't, you cannot do what we have to do. He looked down at her hand. I'm not sure I want to be that kind of man. Her hand dropped away, and her voice hardened. I will not give my life to a man who will not do whatever it takes. Would you kill a boy like that to save Bella's life? Her deep green eyes bored up into his. He glanced away, then looked back into hers. He had already done so. I would. Would you do it to save mine? Yes. Would you do it to save Rusk's? I don't know. She slapped him across the face. You fail again, Lord Codsucker Wollstone. If you would not slaughter a boy like that to save one of us then you fail. Rusk is far more valuable than I am. We don't have a virgin's chance in a moon devil's den if anything happens to the boss. I know, in my deepest heart, that any of these men would gladly kill to save my life. Or Rusk's. Any of these men would take a bullet for me. Or Rusk. We are all that we have. Each other. Her body was touching him again 
and sparks of lightning jolted through the delicate points of contact. He met her gaze and forgot that his cheek still stung from her blow. She had not held back. "'Do you understand?' she said. "'I'm starting to.' "'Good.' Her gaze flicked once to his lips, then she turned away. "'Now get your arse up the ladder.' Before he turned away, he said, "'What was it that hardened you, Sasha?' Her gaze turned inward. She swallowed hard and tightened her lips. Go. Chapter 32 Perhaps we should rest the Kalads here, Shalat Bin, Adon said. They had just reached a point on the Stony Highland Road where the path widened into a shelf wide enough to allow wagons to pass. Behind them, the land dropped away toward the sea like an undulating blanket spotted by a patchwork of pastures and farmlands bathed in mid-morning sun. The road narrowed into a rocky path that led up toward El Jasmine Pass, the chief point of access to the northern coastal region of Barmia from the broad central plains of Fartha. To their left and right, the great peaks of the Tassargoon Mountains heaved their jagged snowy points toward this cloud-tufted sky. Before them, with a long way yet to climb, lay the saddle of the pass, over which they would begin their descent toward the Sargoon River. Shalat Bin nodded and pulled on the reins of his gelded buck Kalad. The two huffing beasts slowed and tossed their heads, lashing their thick, meaty tails and shivering with the release of exertion. Adon's doe chattered and squeaked as he kneed her onto the side of the path. The heavy bundle, tied behind him to the saddle, squirmed and moaned. In their flight from the temple, Adon and Shalat Bin had rolled up their captive inside a heavy rug. "'I cannot believe that they found us!' Shalat Bin snarled for the twentieth time. The great prophet is testing us, Adon said tranquilly. Of course, of course, that must be true. We are doing the prophet's will. We are the hands and blades of the gods. That is the word, Shalat Bin. That is the word. Praise and glory to the great prophet, voice of the gods, beloved of the moon mother. Shalat Bin nodded as he spoke, as if he had needed this exchange to convince himself that it was true. But Adon knew its truth in his heart. He slid off his mount and lashed the long reins around a stone outcropping. The bundle on his saddle whimpered in Cuscan. "'Please, let me out. Just for a little while, please, sirs. I swear on the moon mother I will not try to run away.' Shalat Bin jumped down from his mount. "'Silence, blasphemer!' He punched the side of the bundle, driving out an expulsion of breath. The whimpers died. Adon took out his water bottle and drew a long draft, looking up at the sun. Sadim willing, we shall reach the river before sunset. Shalat Bin drank from his own water bottle. If I may pose a question, Shalat Bin. You may. Who do you think found us? Shalat Bin's brow furrowed. I don't know. I have never seen a Cuscan soldier of this kind. As a blue dragon, 
I was privy to many of the secrets of House Wollstone, and neither did I hear of any such soldier, dressed all in black like a sneak thief. A mercenary, then, a cutthroat, a proficient killer. He slew Najath single-handedly, in the dark. I would not have thought such a thing was possible for anyone except one of our brethren. But how could one man have come this far on his own, and so swiftly that he seemed to be waiting for us? Not one man. He would need a fast ship with an experienced crew. Gullwing was a tub, unfortunately, but it was the best we could arrange. There are more, and they will try to follow us. His eyes looked out over the distance, down the single road leading up from Barmia to Al Jasmine Pass. A gauze of fog had rolled in from the sea early in the morning, obscuring the distance, slowly burning away as Helion's rays came over the surrounding mountains. What shall we tell the master? He will not be pleased when he hears that we were followed. Shalat Ben rubbed his beard. I will speak to the master. His fingers moved to his throat stroking. Any force the Cuscans might send against us hasn't the slightest chance on our own soil. We are far too powerful to be challenged. As soon as we arrive at the High Temple, we will be home, Adon breathed. But how could they have followed us so quickly? Perhaps they captured one of the others in Norgard, forced him to confess. Impossible. Any member of their order would be unlikely to succumb to torture. The same training that taught them how to live and speak as Cuscans also hardened them against the rigors of pain and excruciation. But we have lived among the infidels for a long time. That does something to even the most faithful. Distasteful as the thought might be, perhaps someone's faith was not as strong as ours. Shalat Ben grunted. For now we must reach the river and secure a boat to take us to Alcott. Come, let us waste no more time. Chapter 33 When Javin reached the top of the ladder, he found himself in an earthy-smelling barn, surrounded by straw, farm tools, sacks of grain, and wooden gates. The tunnel door had shoved aside a large mound of straw. Four collards, a handful of skittish cones, and two roomy-eyed box eyed them warily from stalls along one wall. Early dawn light seeped through the shutters and the cracks around the barn door. Rusk stood before a terrified farmer tied to a wooden pillar. Codsucker Tonin, we need to question our prisoner here. I know farmers burn the early morning oil, but this one looks like he's just seen a shade. Tonin walked up to the farmer, an older man, short and wiry, with a dark, weathered face, wispy gray hair, and a stiff, bristly gray beard. Rusk said, Ask him how many of them there were. Tonin spoke to the farmer, who replied with a quavering rush. Tonin said, He says that he knows nothing. He's just a farmer. Aye, and I'm a fucking priest-king, Rusk said. He knew well about this tunnel. Those saddles and tack on the wall are too rich to belong to a two-buck dirt farmer like him. Who do those belong to? Tonin relayed the message. The farmer shook his head and pursed his lips, raising his chin in defiance. 
Rusk stepped closer, towering over the small man. He drew his broadsword. His eyes drilled down into the man's face like charred black awls. He grabbed one of the man's wrists in a fierce grip and held the edge of his blade to the joint. He said only one word. Hathad! The man's eyes bulged and he began to tremble. His knees sagged and his gaze went distant. Rusk took him by the throat and jerked him up again, shoving his skull against the wooden pillar, lifting his eyes up to meet Rusk's chilling gaze. A torrent of terrified speech tumbled out of the man, Tonin translated. He keeps some Kalads for Barmia Temple, and the tunnel is hundreds of years old. His family has long served the temple. He's begging you to spare his wife and son. There were two men and he thinks they had a girl with them. He couldn't see her, but he heard her crying. They wore the robes of... Tonin interrupted the man with a question in Farthy. The man replied, and Tonin just stared at him. Tonin's brow darkened. What? Rusk said. He said they wore the robes of the Ibsatha, the one prophet. What do you know about them? Tonin's mouth was tight and grim. They are the same group that drove my mother out of Almithra, religious zealots. Which way did they go? Tonin asked the question, then translated the response. They took two Kalads and headed south. There is only one road out of this valley, up through the Tasargoon Mountains, Aljazmin Pass. Rusk's gaze never wavered, and his grasp did not loosen. I can see that he's not lying. I think he's not, Tonin said. How long ago? Tonin translated. Perhaps an hour gone. Where are they going? The farmer's eyes streamed tears as he spoke. He doesn't know, Tonin said. No, but he suspects. Where are the Ibsafans? Tonin translated and waited for the reply. The man's eyes flicked left and right up and down, anything to avoid Rusk's gaze. Rusk's grip tightened, and the man's eyes bulged anew. He spoke through an immovable jaw, spittle flying from his lips. He says there are many Ibsatha in Alcott. They have a temple there. What is the fastest way to Alcott? The light of terror in the man's eyes dimmed. His voice grew calm. Most people take the river, the mountain roads are too treacherous to let Kalads run. Rusk released the man's throat and stepped back. He scratched his beard. We'll have to follow them on foot. We don't have any mounts, and I'll be damned if I'll split us up. Damn it! I didn't want to cross country on foot. Carl slipped inside through the barn door. Boss, we're perhaps three hundred paces outside of town. We have a bit of luck. There's a fog rolling in from the sea. Perhaps Zinanen is looking out for us. That's a nice bit of fortune. If we are spotted, we are well and truly arse-fucked. We'll have to follow them as best we can. This valley is wide open country. You can see all the way to El Jasmine Pass from the docks. We need to move. Aye, boss, Carl said. Soon. As Javin listened, the weight of danger bore down on the back of his neck. The sense of being exposed like a guilty spine rat caught in broad daylight, naked and vulnerable amidst an entire populace waiting to kill him. 
Nowhere to hide. Nowhere to run. Then let's go, Rusk said. He took the farmer's head in his hands and twisted until the neck snapped like a chicken's. Carl sliced the corpse's hands free and dumped it in the tunnel, then closed the trap door and covered it with straw. Heaviness fell hard on Javin's breast. In the midst of such casual killing, Javin studied the faces around him, looking for... what? Did they feel remorse for their deeds? Did they enjoy it? Was it honorable to kill an old man even in cold blood? Even a farthy? Was it so necessary? He looked around at the group of hard, black-swathed men standing inside the barn. Was it necessary? With a sick twisting in his gut, Javin sensed the answer to his own question. The finality of it landed on his shoulders like a stone, and here in the midst of death he sensed again a kind of freedom. A kind of freedom that only comes when death is no longer a consequence, when compunctions and notions of civilized honor had no place. He caught Sasha's gaze. Her angular face was somehow soft, her lips pursed. A glimmer of softness and remorse flickered behind her walls. That was enough. Rusk sheathed his broadsword and slung the belt across his back so that the hilt rose to his shoulder. I hope you codsuckers can keep up. Time to move. The run to Al Jasmine Pass reminded Javin of his run to the rook's nest on that dark and rainy night that seemed like a lifetime ago. A long uphill climb like before, but this time the terrain was rougher. How long ago had it been? Less than a month? They stayed off the road, instead crossing farmhouse-scattered fields and pastures. The land was in full bloom, and carpets of wildflowers sprinkled the edges of the fields and clung to low stone walls that bordered many of the terraced fields. As the morning brightened, the fog lifted and they found themselves perhaps two leagues south of Barmia, in a copse of trees where they could take cover until nightfall. Twenty-two figures, clad all in black, running across open country, would be noticed. The copse of trees lay against an outcropping of massive boulders, perhaps five hundred paces from the road, close enough for them to watch for any possible pursuit. Javin chafed at waiting. Bella's screams lingered in his ears. Time slid inexorably past, toward the day when their ship would sail without them and leave them hundreds of leagues from the nearest friendly face. But the reason for hiding was sound. If they were spotted, their mission would be over. News of the events at Barmia Temple would sweep like a wildfire across the countryside. Once they were safely ensconced under cover, the tenseness in his shoulders began to drain away and took the last of his strength with it. Weariness seized him. Orders were murmured around the group, watches chosen. Water sipped from black leather water skins. Rusk, Carl, Ost, and Sasha took the first watch. Grateful for the respite, Javin leaned into the crook between a boulder and a tree trunk. Rusk's broad back, as he looked out over the valley for signs of pursuit, silhouetted between two tree trunks against the brightening day, was the last thing Javin saw before sleep claimed him.
Javin awoke hours later to Shard nudging his leg with a soft boot. The day had grown warm. Birds chittered in the leafy branches above him and the sun dappled the earth. The only other sound was a breeze whispering through the boughs and boulders of their hiding place. "'Your watch,' Shard said quietly. Javin rubbed his eyes. He had slept soundly, without dreams. He stood and stretched. Any news? Shard grinned like an eel, revealing his jagged teeth. His prominent nose and narrow features provided his nickname. Several riders left town as if the Dark Sister were at their heels. I'll wager someone discovered the empty temple. So far, no one has come through the pass from the south. Wake everyone about half an hour before sunset. Javin took his place watching the southern side of the copse, concealed in the undergrowth. He found his eyes kept drifting toward Aljazmine Pass, expecting some mounted column of grim farthy cavalry to thunder down into the valley with vengeance in their eyes. But nothing came. With the fall of darkness they resumed their cross-country run, avoiding the road but angling toward it as they approached the pass. Javin's legs burned with weariness, but the pain was minor compared to two minutes of heaven. If he could endure that, he could run until his legs collapsed under him. They reached the saddle of the pass before midnight, without meeting a single traveler, stopping to rest there. They chewed on dried meat and apple leathers, and after such a long run the tart sweetness of the dried apple set Javin's mouth afire with pleasure. No one made an unnecessary sound. They were shadows of death let loose upon the world. Before them, the slopes of the mountains fell away toward a deep valley that sliced across their path, as if Helion's blade had slashed a deep wound into the face of the earth. Tonight, Mother Inanan's face was nearly full and easily afforded enough light for them to travel. The way down from the pass was much easier. Rusk set a quick pace, and after an hour of downhill running, the saddle of the pass loomed behind them. The sound of a rushing river took dominance over the sound of Javin's own footsteps, a silvery ribbon of water cut through the valley. As they neared the river, the path bent back on itself and revealed a small outpost and a bridge. A mill wheel churned beside a stone millhouse. A wooden bridge, just wide enough to pass a wagon, crossed the river and met another path on the far side. Beside the bridge sat another two-story building that looked like an inn or a way station, with what looked like a stable beside it. Three lights burned in the windows of the ground floor. Someone was awake, or, at least, wanted any intruders to believe they were. Rusk sent Shard ahead to reconnoiter the outpost. While they waited, Javin knelt in the shadows of a roadside boulder and waited for his heartbeat and breathing to slow down. But the tautness in his shoulders remained. Every chance that they could be discovered echoed in his brain like a silent howl. Soon, a black figure emerged from the darkness below and trotted up the path toward them. Shard approached Rusk's dark, motionless form, and they conferred in whispers too low for Javin to hear. With a quick gesture, Rusk led them toward the bridge. They stayed close to the rock wall beside the path to hide their movements, but they had to cross a broad open space between the path and bridge where the mountain path spread out to meet the buildings. In the light of the moon and against the pale ground, the black figures could be easily spotted. Rusk halted them at the last bit of cover. Javin wished for once that the moon's face were not quite so bright, 
Another black figure emerged from the night, Ost. He had not even seen Ost leave the group. There are lights burning in the inn, Ost said, and several men with weapons in the common room. They look like they had set a watch, but everyone has fallen asleep. We must go now. Rusk's voice rose to a hoarse whisper. Everyone listen. There are river boats moored near the bridge. We're going to take those down river. An image of the pirate captain's map appeared in Javin's mind. All of them had memorized it to the smallest detail. Cities, towns, rivers, distances, until each of them could redraw the map themselves. Alcott was about sixty leagues from Barmia, and the Sargoon River led straight to the city. Without another word, Rusk led them in a silent dash for the bridge, about seventy paces, twenty-two black ghosts silhouetted in the moonlight against the pale stony ground. At the river bank, the rushing water muffled their movements as they crept down toward the docks, where several small boats were tied. The boats, built with thick, sturdy timbers and shallow drafts, could hold eight men each. The scrapes and gouges on their hulls bespoke more than a few fast-moving encounters with river stones. The Furies loaded themselves into three of the boats and set the rest adrift down the river ahead of them. And then they were on the river, floating toward the heart of the enemy. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.